What is up? It is Miss Kayton. We are continuing today with chapter three from Jason Reynolds' book, Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. Let's get started. Chapter three, A Different Adam. As I mentioned before, after Zarara's nonsense documentation about slave trading and the savage nature of Africans, many other Europeans started to write their own testimonies and theories. But it didn't stop with just Aristotle or George Best, the travel writer. A century later, the tradition, one that would go on indefinitely, of writing about the African was alive and well and more creative than ever. And when I say creative, I mean trash. There was a piece in 1664 by the British minister Richard Baxter called A Christian Directory. Notes on Baxter. He believed slavery was helpful for African people. He even said there were voluntary slaves, as in Africans who wanted to be slaves so that they could be baptized voluntary slaves? Richard Baxter was clearly out of his mind. There was also work by the great English philosopher John Locke. Notes on Locke in regard to African people. He believed that the most unblemished, purest, perfect minds belonged to whites, which basically meant Africans had dirty brains. And by the Italian philosopher Lucilio Venini, Notes on Vanini. He believed Africans were born of a, quote, different Adam and had a different creation story. Of course, this would mean they were a different species. It was kind of like saying, or to him, proving that Africans weren't actually human, like they were maybe animals or monsters or aliens, but not human at least not like whites, and therefore didn't have to be treated as such. This theory, which is called polygenesis, broke the race conversation wide open. It took Zarara's initial benevolent master mess and put it in bold, like Africans went from savages to savages, which revved up the necessity for Christian conversion and civilizing. Pause. I know we've been going on and on about the people working to justify slavery, but it's important, very important, to note that there were also people all along the way who stood up and fought against these ridiculously racist ideas with abolitionist ideas. In this particular case, the case of Vanini's theory of polygenesis, a group of Mennonites in Germantown, Pennsylvania, rose up. The Mennonites were a Christian denomination from the German and Dutch-speaking areas of Central Europe. During the 16th and early 17th century, Orthodox authorities were killing them for their religious beliefs. Mennonites didn't want to leave behind one place of oppression to build another in America, so they circulated an anti-slavery petition on April 18, 1688 denouncing oppression due to skin color by equating it with oppression due to religion. Both oppressions were wrong. 
This petition, the 1688 Germantown Petition Against Slavery, was the first piece of writing that was anti-racist. Word check among European settlers in colonial America. But whenever people rise up against bad things, bad things tend to get worse. You know the old saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get racist or something like that. So all that anti-racist talk coming from the Mennonites was shut down because slaveholders didn't like their business talked about like it was wrong because they needed their slaves, because their slaves made them money. It's really all quite simple. Now there's an obvious backdrop we need to discuss, the subject of our first grade color in the lines cornucopia worksheets, the misinterpreted, misrepresented owners of this terrain, the Native Americans. All this is happening on their land, a land that was taken from them forcefully, claimed and owned by Europeans running from their homelands, afraid for their lives. It's kind of like the kid who gets beat up every day at school, comes home crying to his mother, and she decides to take him to a new school. And guess what he does when he gets to the new school? He pretends like he wasn't just on the receiving end of a boot sole and instead becomes the most annoying tough guy in the world. And the Native Americans were sick of the tough acting, arrogant new kid. So, fight. The Native American and new white American beef had been brewing for over a year. But let's be honest, it had to have been brewing much longer than that. And when I say brewing, I mean people were dying, bloodshed in the soil. The Puritans in New England had already lost homes and dozens of soldiers, but eventually a man named Metacomet, a Native American war leader, was killed, which basically ended the battle in 1676. Puritans cut up his body, like savages, as if it were a hog's, and paraded his remains around Plymouth. But Metacomet's tribe weren't the only indigenous people, obviously, or the only ones being attacked. Down in Virginia, a 29-year-old frontier planter, Nathaniel Bacon, wait, let's take a time out and acknowledge the irony in the fact that there was a planter whose last name was Bacon. Bacon! Maybe he should have been a butcher. Anyway, Bacon was upset, not about the race issue, but instead about the class issue. Here he was, a white laborer who was also being taken advantage of by the white elite. So what did he, so what he did to disrupt the powers that be was shift his anger from the rich whites to the Susquehannocks, a tribe of natives. This may seem like a strange move, but it was a smart play because the governor at the time, William Berkeley, was doing anything he could not to fight with the natives because it would mess up his fur trade and thus mess up his money. So attacking the natives was a way of attacking the power structure, but through the back door. As we say now, hit them in their pockets where it really hurts. And to make matters worse, 
Bacon declared liberty for all servants and blacks because as far as he was concerned, though they were different races, they were the same class and should be united against the true enemy, rich whites. But the governor knew if blacks and whites joined forces, he'd be done. Everything would be done. It would have been an apocalypse. So he had to devise a way to turn poor whites and poor blacks against each other so that they'd be forever separated and unwilling to join hands and raise fists against the elite. And the way he did this was by creating, wait for it, white privileges. Time for a breath break. Everyone inhale, hold it, exhale and breathe out. Privilege. Still here? Good. Let's move on. So, white privileges were created, and at this time, they included, one, only the white rebels were pardoned. Legislators prescribed 30 lashes for any slave who lifted a hand against any Christian. Christian now meant white. Two, all whites now wielded absolute power to abuse any African person. Those are the two most important ones. Poor whites wouldn't be punished, but they could surely do the punishing. 